Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a funny way, it's almost like going back to being the bank manager sitting in the heart of your community and, and knowing how your community works and knowing what your community needs and wants and joining people together and networking and trying to help different groups, different societies, different organizations to, to keep the wheels moving in the right way. Hey, how are you? Very good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. It's uh, it's good to get you on the podcast. I'm really excited for this one because I think there's loads of different avenues that we can go down. So I guess before we kind of dive into the the crux, let's maybe start with a background into who you are, what you do, and, and your why. Sure. So um, I'm Camilla, and I work for the NatWest Group. I work in Coots, and I'm lucky enough to be a managing director, and I look after all of the client relationship teams. So anybody that looks after, advises, serves, engages with clients end-to-end across the business, whether those are international or UK clients, come into my world, which is great. And I sit on the executive committee for the private bank. Nice. And I guess one of the things that drove this conversation was, obviously, we we had an initial preliminary conversation a little while ago, and we were talking about the challenges within the economy at the moment. And let's start with maybe like the trust paradox, because when we were looking at business versus government, we, we both kind of talked about how some of societal issues and some of the, the challenges that we face are probably not going to be solved by the government. So, so why exactly is that? Well, I think it's, uh, I think when we face into what we're trying to solve for, so if you think about you know, the obvious, the, the climate change mandate and, and the crisis that we're facing into, you know, these are big seismic global shifts needed in terms of behaviours, in terms of innovation, uh, in terms of thinking about how we treat and live in the planet and treat each other and how we consume uh, what we do. And, and finance is pretty critical to that. And I think from a financial organisation perspective, nobody can do this alone. These types of big societal, environmental issues are going to need a combination of governments, business and consumers to come together uh, in order to be able to solve for it. Because then everybody starts to pull in the same direction. I think historically, you you had the uh, devolution or the the quest for deregulation and devolution and uh, neoliberalism frankly, that was you know, everyone free free to go and do what they like versus this very controlled, command and controlled central government models. And neither one, I think, will work going forward. And therefore, you're starting to see a lot more of the middle ground. 
A good example of that was COP26, I think, finally, when I think the resounding feedback from most of the participants and people who've done many COPs before in the past is finally business turned up. So business turned up with governments, NGOs, other organisations who all had the same aligned interests and things start to actually move and things start to get done. Do you think in respect to COP that they went far enough? I think it was a good start. You know, again, it's quite, it's very complex. So you've got to go as far as you think, you know, it's on the edge of ambition, but it's also achievable. Because if you go too far, I think you can quickly lose people, you can lose momentum, you can lose followership if it suddenly becomes an impossible task. And I know many people talk about moonshots, but I think with regards to climate change, it needs to be really carefully planned, transition planning, yeah, it has to be well thought, thought through. It's complex. It's a big shift in consumer behaviours. It's a big shift in terms of how the regulators think. It's a big shift in terms of being accountable and measuring what you're trying to do. So actually making sure that you baseline, everybody baselines accurately and then measures appropriately to follow through to see how close, how much progress is coming, you know, make, being made to the outcomes. So I think everyone would love to do more, Absolutely. But I think ultimately you have to do an agree to action that is achievable so that you've got milestones that can be built on. Because it's not just one COP. There are plenty of COPs after COP26 where progress gets measured. But it's about that authenticity and the ability to show demonstrable action has generated outcomes. Yeah, exactly. And, and you touched upon like, accountability, and I'm intrigued to kind of dig a little bit deeper into that, not necessarily COP, but more so in respect to the rising inequality that we're seeing throughout society at this present point in time. What What's your opinions in respect to the challenges and the barriers and, yeah, I guess, like the accountability piece in respect to rising inequalities? I think in terms of the rise of inequality, I think everybody everybody has an element of responsibility and thinking about how do they best operate themselves, what are the opportunities available to them, how can they create opportunities for others, you know, what is the balance between state support and private support, what is it that you can do collectively as communities, how do you make sure that you connect people to opportunity lessons learned from situations you might see playing out. So, for example, I think we all saw COVID was a pretty stark way of showing and exposing or surfacing issues that have been there but actually become more visible. For example, tech poverty, technology poverty, you know, people not having devices to do things on that most of us take for granted. You know, a lot of us have phones and laptops and iPads and all sorts of things. Uh, a lot of people in that situation we found didn't. And now we get into the situation where we're looking at food poverty and energy poverty and all of those aspects. Everybody needs to have a collective conscience over. But you have to think, I think, from a business perspective, what can you do? If you're, you know, we're a purpose-driven organisation overall, so what is it that we can do that helps people, support people and helps people thrive and make the best of a situation or find an opportunity to improve their situation? And as a government, I think you need to think about the governments clearly need to decide how much support they can give and can they be quite disciplined but also much more targeted about how they provide support. So it's actually going to the places where it's most effective. And whether that's then triaging or coming together between business, charity, government in order to be able to do that most effectively, I think we're seeing a lot more collaboration. And I think it goes back to the, the point we were talking about before, 
I think in isolation, is it easier? Is it better? Is it a more palatable option for people to feel they can trust a combination of government, <laughs> governments, charities, support, support businesses and business and, co- and commerce themselves, rather than just relying one or the other? So public and private sector actually coming closer together to work hand in hand together with the non-for-profit sector. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, you mentioned trust. I think trust has played out to be one of the key indicators in some of the challenges that we face. But I think wider, like you also touch upon the importance of partnerships. And yeah, I'm definitely behind you on that because I believe that in the challenges that we face today, like they cannot be solved alone. It's it's kind of, it has to be done by collaborative efforts. So it's interesting to see where we go because kind of one of the things that I see at the moment is prediction of the future in respect to, you know, everybody talks about like Ukraine and Russia, but they're they're not looking at the finite details about things that potentially may come from blockades that's taken place in respect to the exploitation of grain. Well, I mean, it was that that was a very pertinent point, particularly, I'm sure you would have heard on the radio this morning, clearly the conversations around G7 and that very point, you know, what happens to the millions of tonnes of grain that sits in the breadbasket of Europe. And it's not accessible through Odessa. Both Ukraine and Russia have to decide that they're going to clear their mines, the mines that are floating around uh, in the sea. And actually, how do you access it? Do you have to persuade Turkey to come in with ships? Or can we provide? Can we can we negotiate a corridor out? But then you also have reports coming through that that grain is already is already being picked up and moved into another country. Russia's picking it up and moving it into Russia. So, I mean, the geopolitical and you know, environment will have it will no doubt it is definitely having an effect already uh, and will have an effect on the dynamics of food provision. And I think it will hit particularly actually outside of the Western economies and the Western world harder than it will do uh, across Europe and the US and the UK. And I think it is going to be, that will be a tipping point for many politicians uh, trying to decide actually what is the best outcome from the Russia-Ukraine war. Can we adjust quickly enough? Are we able to support those economies and those those countries where it's going to be felt the hardest in terms of the lack of provision of, of wheat. Yeah, exactly. And I think also from a government stance, especially in, in light of the UK government, a lot of the challenges that we're going to see down the line in respect to like food production, distribution, and also the challenges that may come come from that. It's largely, we're going to see a government that are going to have to change some of their core kind of principles that they've been built on over the years. So when you look at the challenges in Ukraine, you touched upon it to begin with, the Western world aren't really going to be impacted as much as the likes of um, the Middle East and Africa, because that's largely where the vast majority of grain goes to from Ukraine. If they're not able to get access to to these supplies of food then there's knock-on effects in respect to food poverty which culminates in a large global refugee crisis now that's going to end up seeing people sweep from those regions to go in search of food and in search of a better quality of living elsewhere so it's interesting because you know some of the the challenges that we see at the moment for me, it's about being pre- preventative rather than reactive. I think we've we've had a lot of periods of time of reactive in respect to the last couple of years. So I'm intrigued as to how government kind of look towards some of these larger challenges and um, work with people and create partnerships to make sure that we're able to remediate in advance um, rather than kind of um, react at the time of crises. 
Well, I think these types of these types of crises often they're they're not necessarily foreseen, and therefore, like the pandemic, it wasn't really expected. If you think about um, business business continuity plans, you know most business continuity plans relied on the fact that there were other business premises that people could go to. Never thought about the fact that there would be no business premises that people could go to, and that enormous shift working from home. But actually, you see how quickly people adopted and businesses adopted new practices and new techniques. We feel the same way about climate change. You know, climate change is going to be, is a great catalyst for innovation and to find alternative solutions. And that almost intertwines with countries' ability to not, to make sure that they have food security, for example. Can they actually be more self-sufficient or can you actually loosen up supply chains or, or free up supply chains or make them more efficient as well as being able to grow your own more effectively. It's such a complex environment, but at the same time, so many of these issues are interlinked. But actually, these pressure points really force human behaviour to really dig deep and think about different ways of alleviating situations or improving situations and making yourself or making situations or economies or communities more resilient for the future. Yeah, exactly. And that resilience piece is going to be key. We need to read things like Oxfam's Inequality Kills report. And we do see evident rising inequalities. We we see at the moment in, in the UK and further afield, the cost of living crisis playing out. We'll get onto the recession piece a little bit further down the line because I think there's good parallels to be drawn between the crash of 2008-2009 to year to date. But I'm also intrigued as to, like not, not long ago, because obviously... The crisis that is taking place in in Ukraine with respect to Russia, it was kind of at a distance for a period of time. But now we see, like the head of the army, just the other week, come out and say, "We we we are the generation that must prepare to the army to fight in Europe once again." There is now a burning imperative to forge an army capable of fighting alongside our allies and defeating Russia in battle. Now, I. I read those words and I, I looked at that particular piece uh, a couple of Sundays ago when he, when he brought it out and I was like, oh my God, we're going to go to war. This is crazy. But yeah, what, what's your thoughts in respect to the, the overarching challenge that we see at the moment in respect to Russia-Ukraine? I think the overarching challenge is, is how do you manage the knock-on effect or the knock-on consequences? So the, the war itself is a, is a tra- tragedy. I mean, it really is. There's a lot of human life being lost. You know, the Western governments, NATO is doing as much as it feels comfortable to do without stepping into a place where it could escalate the situation. And I think everybody's focused on not wanting the situation to escalate because it's unpredictable uh, and none of us want to go to war. Certainly pre this physical war, most people thought warfare was going to turn into cyber warfare uh, and be much more remote, whereas this just reminds us that warfare is hand-to-hand combat on the ground still. So I think it really is a case of just trying to understand the impact of, again, supplies of certain key commodities, such as food, such as materials, minerals, fertilizer etc what that does and we've seen that in prices and we've seen that in the way you know price inflation has gone energetic or quite you know fierce in some some assets and what the impact of that is going to be but prices also tend to correct and particularly again if you start to find solutions and alternatives to potash i mean this this forces the innovation in areas like fertilizer etc and forces again countries to think about other options 
But I think also there comes a point where for certain things, countries will become more you know, nationalistic. You know, everybody was extremely excited and the march on of globalisation, you know, through the 2000s was was going great guns. But actually, I think in the last couple of years, particularly that also driven by the pandemic, countries are thinking about, well, how do we just, are less, how do we become less reliant on some of our neighbours and some of our supply chains and transfer of goods uh, and services? So I think, I think it will have a, it will have a knock-on effect in terms of, how companies adjust, and also thinking probably longer term, how do we come together in order to help rebuild? Because there's a, there is a duty for us all to come together and help re, help Ukraine rebuild, whatever that you know, whatever the outcome looks like. There will hopefully be an element of re, Ukraine to rebuild and provide that support. I mean, I think the thing I that always gives me lots of hope is that when you look at the charitable funds that get directed in response to issues or crises that are unexpected. It is incredible the flow, the global flow of money and you know how, dig, how deep individuals dig into their pockets in order to be able to fund and send money towards charitable causes or needs in order to help alleviate the situation or at least try and stabilise the situation uh, in the short term and then support rebuild programmes for the longer term. Yeah, exactly. It's it's interesting as well when we kind of looked at, I remember during the pandemic where we were all kind of out on our doorsteps clapping for the carers and um, we kind of see on the back end of the initial waves of the pandemic, very much an economy built of of care, of empathy, people looking to kind of help one another. There's There's been a evident shift towards a desire for more community, more kind of su- support for, for people, which is really interesting. I'm just intrigued as to where we go from here, because obviously my viewpoints in respect to a purpose-driven society is where I'm, I'm hoping we go, go towards, but I do see the challenges that we, we have ahead of us in order to get there. Talking about the element of challenge, this gives me the perfect opportunity to dive into the financial crash of 2008-9 and kind of draw on some of the parallels that we see today, because to me, looking on you know, I do. I do see a lot of the same indicators that we saw back then in respect to um, the expectation towards a recession. I'd be shocked if we don't have a recession, but I don't think, likewise, it, it'll be something along the lines of like a light bulb moment. I think it's going to be a slow and steady issue that's going to kind of hurt hurt people in their pockets and in their lives for a longer period of time. But I'm interested speaking to you on the, on the basis of your experience. What are your views? What are you seeing at the moment? And, and what are you kind of, what are your initial thoughts? It's an interesting question around, are there parallels between the markets crisis in 2008 and 09 and today? And the one word that links them both is probably credit, but in different ways. So the crisis in 2008 and 09 was a credit crisis. And it was a credit crisis really driven by greed. So it was the use of credit in order to reuse instruments in order to continue to make a turn or make a profit on those assets and repricing them and rebundling them and selling them on. And that really, when that all unraveled, that was that was the reason for the credit the credit crunch effectively in 2008 and 09. And I don't, I don't, we don't necessarily see the same parallels to the volatility that we're seeing in markets now. But credit is still 
a common link because today there is a lot more credit in the system, but it's credit in the basic things like mortgages. There's a lot more debt in the system, and that's been underpinned by the money that was created in order to be able to support all of the all countries through COVID. You know, that's an element of you know, years of quantitative easing and money being put into the system post the credit crunch, but also then amplified in the last couple of years. So everybody's been able to sort of live their lives and carry on and carry on buying houses or taking out mortgages or using their credit cards. And so the consumer spending continues. So do we see a recession? Do I see a recession in the same way as you do? Maybe, maybe not. I think I'm a little bit more cautiously optimistic. But based on the fact that actually central banks don't have the same lever to pull anymore, they don't have the same lever in terms of interest rates to hit the brakes really hard because in reality, majority of the central banks want to engineer a, a slowing of an economy and a, a gentler easing of inflation, but they can only raise rates to a certain degree because otherwise they then really do risk creating a recession. Now, there may be some hawks out there saying that's the best thing that could happen, we should create a recession uh, in order to re-rate or recalibrate the economy, but I think central banks, and you saw it last the other week with the Fed, you know, hiking to 2.75. You know, that, that sends a very clear message. And now there's commentary coming through. We can start to see there's potential for inflation to start abating in the US and start to, to come back down. I think in the UK it's going to inflation's going to be a little bit more persistent. You know, if we look at commodity prices, and in particular, if you look at copper and oil, you know, they're, they're pretty key inflation drivers. And we're seeing the signs that those prices related to inflation in the US are starting to peak. But if we look at the PMI, the Purchasing Managers Index, and the new orders ratio, we're starting to see that fall off as well. So, you know, consumerism is slowing. And the CPI is, is usually a lagging indicator. But once we start to see that come down, we should start to see, again, a slight easing in inflation. But I think in the UK, it will be persistent through into next year. That's for sure, because we just have we have a different reliance on energy and the way our energy prices pricing is, is worked, that we're going to have to get through the winter until and through into spring next year before we see any, any let up, I think, for people's cost of living. Yeah, I think it's, you know, the cost of living thing's so, so key because just two weeks ago, I was talking about like the true cost behind the cost of living. And when, when I, I think when we first talked, I think we were talking about this particular thing in respect to the 31 billion, um, which is 5.2% of economic shortfall that we've lost due to Brexit. You know, you mentioned quantitative easing. I think the UK it was about 900 billion if i'm not if i'm not mistaken and yeah because of kind of failure by treasury to kind of take out insurance against the interest rates hikes we that's another 11 billion so i think the the amount of money that we're kind of losing in the uk is kind of driving a lot of the issues that we're seeing in the day to day in respect to food prices in respect to petrol in respect to the the real difficulties that a lot of families are, are facing at the moment and like I don't know when it'll be, but I think the, the, there's got to be an adult conversation sooner rather than later in respect to Brexit. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, personally, I was a Remainer, so I, I, <laughs> um, I fear that yes, we can. We know that Brexit's having an impact, but we can't really quantify it because there are so many other forces at play as well. So it's quite difficult to isolate the impact. But it's pretty. I was in Scotland last week. 
talking to farmers and when it's difficult to get labour to take the broccoli out of the fields and get them into the supermarkets. You know, when you've got food production in your in your country, on your doorstep, you've got farmers who are producing food but aren't able to take it from field to fork. You know, that is, that's a challenge. And the difference, I think, between the situation we're in now and previous recessions is that we have such strong employment. You know, there is no shortage of, of jobs. And that's one of the challenges that we're facing is that we don't have enough people or we haven't got enough people in the jobs needed in order to be able to deliver at the rate we want to consume as a, as a country. Yeah, I think I'm also a Remainer as well. In respect to that Brexit argument, I'd love it to get beyond an argument. I'd love it for people to kind of agree disagreeably per se that, that that they can kind of have different fields of view but it's not so polarizing because I think whoever and whenever that point in time comes that we are going to have a, an adult conversation about Brexit I, I want people to kind of understand that it isn't kind of an us versus them narrative it's we've got to like look at challenges as to the real implications and and try and find out proper remediations, real solutions that are going to help people going forward that rather than kind of have this debate that kind of led to, you know, a pretty chaotic ends, as I mentioned, in respect to the loss of 5.2% shortfall in our GDP. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Moving outside of the realms of Brexit and the financial crash, like you mentioned at the beginning that you guys are a purpose-driven organization. So kind of tell me a little bit more about Coots than like your purpose and like your what, why and how. Well, I suppose it, it starts at the top of the house, actually. So in 2019, when Alison Rose became the NatWest Group, 
CEO, she part of her vision was to help us pivot towards being a purpose-led organization. And so we set out with a pretty straightforward purpose that, you know, our role is to champion potential and help people, families and businesses thrive. And it's sort of all-encompassing. It was really trying to bring alive again what the role of a bank was uh, in society. Personally, I found it incredibly invigorating and appealing once I'd sat down and thought about it. And, and really, we started to work through this isn't, this isn't a marketing gimmick. This isn't a sort of strap line designed to, to just get everybody motivated. This is something that's really fundamental to our core. And it will take a number of years for us to get there. And we spent a lot of time talking to the likes of Sue Garrard, who was involved in Unilever's pivot to being a purpose-led organization, to really understand what that means and what does that what does that entail for an organization to really live? So you know, we're only we're three years in, but actually we're we're pretty clear in the areas that we're focused on. Uh, we're focused on climate, we're focused focused on enterprise, and we're focused on learning. And it's under those three areas of focus that those areas drive now our decision making, thinking about well, how do we design solutions? How do we design solutions across our loan book and help apply capital in more productive ways? How do we design solutions through our investment philosophy and approach and help customers invest their capital in impactful ways? How do we think about our people? How do we think about our role in communities? How do we support the enterprise agenda? And everything we do links back to that purpose. And it's refreshing because we also have metrics. So, you know, what, what gets measured gets done. Let's be straightforward. And it's good to have those metrics in place where we can hold again, we can hold ourselves to account and we can start to see progress towards the multiplier effect that money has. And I think personally for me, it, was, it came just at, just at a great time. You know, I've been in this industry, uh, gosh, <laughs> longer than I care to admit, probably to about 28 years. And having gone through sort of never really actually wanting to be a banker or never sort of imagining as a child or as a teenager or as a student that I'd be a banker, but actually, you know, coming to love it and loving, it's fundamentally a people business. It's about solving problems and the role finance has to play in solving those problems. You know, having had the sort of exuberance of the 80s and, you know, the big bang and deregulation through to the hangover in the early 90s, but then picking up again where everything was about maximizing shareholder value and it was all about making money. You know, once you got through the credit crunch of 2008-09, it was quite fatiguing, you know, and I did have to start to scratch my head as I got into, you know, the 2012, 13, 14, 15, thinking, well, what am I doing? <laughs> what, what am I doing this for? What's the meaning of it? And so actually being able to start to think about the shift to stakeholder capitalism, so really thinking about actually aligning purpose and profit and really understanding the the impact both a, a business can have to both its consumers but also to a bigger agenda is exciting. And it's exciting to show that you can do it and make a profit and you can do it authentically, you know, and it's quite satisfying actually, from my perspective. That's, and that's one of the reasons why, again, I think it's reinvigorated just at the right time, particularly in the world of business, where business interests and business, the way of doing business is aligning with the societal needs and the environmental needs together with governments you know, 
under you know longer term agendas. And so the three things are becoming much more joined up. And actually, people are joining up the dots. Consumers are joining the dots uh, and wanting to understand the multiplier effect of their funding or their investing or the support that they can get. In a funny way, it's almost like going back to being the bank manager sitting in the heart of your community and, and knowing how your community works and knowing what your community needs and wants and joining people together and networking and trying to help different groups, different societies, different organisations to, to keep the wheels moving in the right way. Yeah, exactly. And and I love the bit when you talk about how it's almost like being a, a bank manager in, in a community because kind of the community element is so, so key. I remember, and also is the, the accountability as well and, and the metrics for impact. I remember not too long ago we were chatting to Tom McGillicuddy at Circa 5000 and I love the way how they've changed their viewpoint in respect to, to investing where it's solely focused about people and, and planet and there's more transparency in respect to what you can see, where your investments are. This shift towards accountability impact and transparency is is refreshing it's 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 really nice to see how like the industry is changing i think um are we seeing a fundamental reshaping of finance i think you're seeing a different personality of finance i mean the mechanics of finance remain the same i mean the way a balance sheet remains the same the choice is what you do with it how do you help investors invest their capital and as well as how you as a bank or a wealth manager lends money out Equally, how you action your banking transactions in terms of are you doing it in a, in a safe and sustainable way? Are you doing it with forethought about what actually what actually the impact is that you're having? For example, you know, lots of lots of customers are interested in cryptocurrency, and it's just trying to think through and work through with customers what aspects they need to have consideration for, like financial crime, like energy usage. I like thinking about any unintended consequences from innovation or areas such as digital assets that are coming through. Uh, it's not to say that there's not space for innovation. There's not space for all sorts of developments of digital assets, the metaverse, crypto, you know, the use of blockchain technology, which you know many of the companies, many of us are using already. But it's just trying to think about sensible, intelligent, sustainable, safe ways to apply it so that you avoid any issues further down the line. I think what you said about accountability is really important for us. I mean, it's important from a NatWest group perspective, but also from a Coots perspective. We decided to apply to become a B Corps in 2020, and we we gained our accreditation in July 2021. And, you know, it's the first, you know, for a company that's got 330 years of history, you know, we were the first UK headquartered private bank and the fourth largest B Corps in the UK. And that to us is really important because it's an external validation of our commitment to governance, to workers, to the communities, to environment and to customers. And we even had to go as far as changing our articles of association so that we could demonstrate that we act in the interests of all stakeholders in society and and not just our shareholders. So it's really important for us to to, to be part of the B Corp community because, again, it's interesting, actually, how many clients know about B Corp and they know about the movement, but also businesses that we've come across and actually just finding more ways to partner and, again, provide strengths or scale that we might have to help others 
achieve that too. And we have a mission to help as many of our clients become B Corps as they want to, so help them through that, that journey. I think the key here is about how, from us, from our perspective, how do we use, as a, from a purpose orientation, how can we use all the connections we have? How do we join the dots between clients and customers, money, time, skills, influence, networks to affect real change? And some of those might be formal business partnerships to achieve scale, and others might be more, more informal and just creating, trying to create different ecosystems. So whether that's providing accelerator hubs for entrepreneurialism, you know, whether that's just bringing like-minded people together to think about a particular philanthropic theme that they're interested in, you know, that, that's the fun bit. You know, money is just a factor. <laughs> um, money, money makes things happen. It's just a factor. It's what actually happens with that money, which is all with those connections that's more interesting. And it's really like, I'm super excited when you start talking about like bringing people together, like partnerships and the long term, because that's where it's about, right? Where where we're at this present point in time in respect to purpose. There's a lot of people wanting to understand um, how to kind of become more purposeful, how to change their businesses to kind of be more future focused. But a lot of them kind of get stuck, I would say, in respect to the activation piece. So in my experience i think the best way to activate purpose is to kind of collaborate and narrate what you stand for and represent and i think if we touch upon the collaboration piece there's amazing people like we we spoke not too long ago with um scott goodson who's the head of strawberry frog they created this thing called the purpose power index which i really like and i think you know it's starting to get some real movement behind it likewise to what you you mentioned around b corp like i love the the premise of b corp because it, it's the accountability piece is done externally. So you have to live up to a certain level of expectation, otherwise it'll get removed. So I think what the B Corp certification provides is a level of trust in respect to what you, you're building. And further afield to that, like I think where we are at the moment, it's it's about education. And we might not know all the, all the answers, but I think if we get the right heads in, in the room, and kind of work out where we want to go and why. I think there's, there's like the future can be anything we decide to to create from it. And um, we're at that real change moment at this point in time. So, you know, you did also mention earlier about stakeholder capitalism. I'm intrigued because obviously we've had ages, ages talking about Milton Freeman's viewpoint on neoliberalism in respect to like shareholder value above and beyond anything else. But Everybody, I believe, now is is a vested stakeholder in an organization's success. In times of um, turbulence, in times of crisis, if people don't have sufficient money to go out and 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 purchase, then that consumer power that's behind a lot of um, the success of business can kind of fall by the wayside. So, there's while it's quite easy to create short term wealth, it's the long term sustainability that we kind of have to look towards to make sure that economies are kind of fit for purpose. We are in a seismic change moment. So on, on, the, on the, the movements of change, you did touch upon stakeholder capitalism. So what's your viewpoint of Milton Freeman and where, you know, in respect to stakeholder capitalism, where this can potentially um, take us next? Well, I suppose um, we're great fans of stakeholder capitalism. I think it is, it is the way forward. I mean, and it underpins the way that we've approached as an organization you know our basics of our of our purpose so you know we work for work with blueprint for better business and follow the five principles frankly if you want and just as you talked about 
if your purpose is one which delivers long-term sustainable purpose, well, then you've got to be honest and fair with your customers and your suppliers. You know, you've got to have that type of relationship. You've got to want to be a good citizen, whichever ecosystem you, you are operating in. You want to be responsible and you want to be responsive as an employer because you can make a huge amount of difference as an, as an amazing employer. And you, therefore, you need to be a guardian for future generations. You need to be investing and thinking about your investment funding and business plans, about what does what the future look like, not even five years in advance, but 10 and 15. And are you investing now in order to make sure that the business is, is in good shape? You know, far in advance, well before, you know, well after I've finished my career, probably, although I'd quite like to work for at least another 20 years. So for us, it's, it's critical because again, it has this multiplier effect, and let's be pretty blunt: wealth creates wealth. You know, so if you can redirect that wealth to create opportunities to help others create wealth across every strata of society, then that's got to be a good thing. You know, I, I suppose I speak from a little bit of personal experience in that my wife's family come from a very proud working class background, and you know, from a family of miners. Um, and she was the first one to go to university. And by virtue of that, her niece has gone to university. And, you know, the family dynamic and the opportunities start to increase and broaden out. You know, it's simple things about making sure that you achieve that circularity of wealth. And banks, financial, in, financial businesses, wealth managers are best placed to help with that direction of wealth or that, you know, that the purpose that people can have, institutions can have, what they can achieve with their allocation of capital or how we allocate our funding. Yeah, and I think you, you hit it so so perfectly there with respect to your viewpoints on wealth because like traditionally we've always had that view that wealth is to be retained where I don't think that's the case anymore. Wealth is about opportunities and wealth is about giving people opportunities to enrich themselves as well as their own lives and yeah, I think by that having a more balanced view in respect to how wealth creation is done and obviously the longer term effects. You know, I remember when I was chatting to Tom, he talked he he said something about you want to build a future that you want to retire into and obviously build a future that you are allowing for opportunities for future generations to thrive. And I, I really like that kind of viewpoint because if you start thinking about others rather than ourselves in respect to growth development and and wealth in respect to the, the the larger piece, I think more can be achieved. Definitely, I think more can be achieved, and I think we've got the mindset and we've got the we've got the will to want to do it. I think if you look at you know I was reading reading a survey from the from the Beacon Collaborative the other day and just looking at what the current uh, level of giving is now philanthropy is not the only answer and philanthropy philanthropy has been you know an answer for hundreds of years you know I happen to work for a bank where you know we had one of the greatest philanthropists in the time of Dickens you know Angela Bedeck Coots gave away effectively 300 million of today's money in you know of her fortune but still there is that that is an increasing trend you know two and a half billion was given away annually from the top one percent of the wealth holders in the UK and you know people with more than 10 million of assets tend to give away between one to two percent of their wealth every year you know those are those are meaningful sums but that runs all the way through all levels of wealth you know the British are incredibly generous but I think the question in my mind is 
there's a lot of charitable giving. And I wonder, actually, can you harness that better? Do people give more from a charitable giving perspective? Because actually, even though we're a ta- you know, we have taxes, actually perhaps they feel charities are more effective in the allocation of those funds than the government are. Is there a gap there? Is there something, is there something in that? Again, philanthropy is very personal, but you know, there's definitely a will for communities to, and people to support each other. So is there a smarter way we can harness that? And I think some of that debate might come out in, in if the levelling up conversations ever get, you know, if they move beyond you know, Andy Haldane's white paper and his, sort of, you know, his, his start of the 10 in terms of, of how we might do this. But I think, again, it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning is how can you harness the private sector, individuals, the public sector, government and not-for-profit together and create that scale so change can happen? Yeah, exactly. Ch- for change to happen, I think there's got to be an understanding as to challenge. So we, we have we have mentioned throughout this podcast about like the inequalities, but I think we almost need to get to those first principles in respect to you know, not only like political representation in respect to the the world and the economy that we're trying to build, but ultimately, you know, basic principles such as like a livable minimum wage and a fair tax system for all. That, that some of this stuff we've kind of we we talked about previously with the patriotic millionaires and the work that they're doing largely in the US. But I think at the moment it's 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 about understanding the dynamics of of the economic model that we have at this present point in time and and looking for solutions that are going to be beneficial for all going forward and I think that's only really going to be a conversation and and that'll lead to solutions by having the right people around the table by kind of having diversification in respect to thought and views to make sure that what we are building out for the future is is something that's going to be sustainable and true and I think um, there's also other ways to continue to affect change if you think we we touched upon it earlier in terms of investing and you know if you have a if you have a pension with a company you're you're an investor by default you know you've already also enrolled so what is what is that money being invested in you know how responsible is the asset manager what's the responsible investment policy of the asset manager of choice and it goes it's not just the environmental aspects you know if you think about the societal aspects you know again investment into companies that do provide a living wage and a London living wage if their workforce is in London. So how can you make sure that you're, as an investor or as a fund manager, or as a wealth manager, you're holding the companies that you're investing in to account? And that's something we've been building all the way through every single one of our investment solutions. Our view is it's not something special and different. It's something that needs to be a basic hygiene factor across any any aspect of the investment solutions that we provide and it means that you know you can have the same the same impact if you're a, a multi-millionaire investing through funds or into portfolios with us as you can if you're putting money through our you know through NatWest Invest for example 50 quid a month in NatWest Invest you have the same ability for your money to have both a positive impact for you in the longer term but also a positive impact in the way that businesses run themselves so so true i could talk to you all day because i'm fascinated by kind of your experience and also your viewpoints in respect to society and where where we go from here but kind of that's that's maybe a good point to close on like what what are your kind of key thoughts takeaways and and ultimately what's next my takeaway for any from anybody listening is it's so true when people say that individuals can have 
an impact, a positive impact, and because everybody has a purpose. Not everybody's purposes are the same or always aligned, but everybody can have an impact. As a banker, as a wealth manager, all I would really say is, you know, today you're able to really be able to start to see the impact of your money or how you run your finances, how you borrow and what for, how you invest and what for. You know, it has a multiplier effect. So the benefits go beyond just you as an individual. You can have a multiplier effect just by thinking about how you manage your money. And all I would say is uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this time, Peter. It's been really, really interesting, quite thought-provoking. I quite like the random walk that we went through. And again, I agree, we could talk for hours. But thank you. No, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Made podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views. You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.